several weeks now. I've been in the second book of Thessalonians doing an expositional verse-by-verse series on Paul's second letter that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. And the last week, the last two weeks, we considered verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, which deals with the great subject that we sometimes call eschatology, which is the study of last things. And that not only means last things at the very last day, the end of all days, but that means things that were at the end of the old age and everything until the final second coming of the Lord. All of that is the last days. In that sense, we're living in last days. We're in those period. But a lot of what Paul was talking about was imminent for those that he was writing. They were in danger. They were being persecuted. And Paul had been trying to warn them and to equip them to be able to handle so that their faith would not falter and they would continue. Now we pick up the reading in chapter 2, beginning at the 13th verse through verse 17 of Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Once again, hear the word of the living God. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing upon father this is your word and again without the help of your holy spirit we will not be able to understand it rightly or apply it properly or see any change take place unless you come and honor your word by your spirit help the one who would in weakness Seek to help us understand its teaching better. Keep me from error. Lord, guide us into all truth. And Lord, let it change us from the inside out. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. There's a natural tension between being earthly minded and being heavenly minded. You've heard the expressions. He's too earthly minded to be of any heavenly good, or you may have heard it the other way. Sometimes people are accused of being too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. 
Interesting on the uh, uh, the earthly minded, the warning for those people that are got their their mind too set here. Uh, Tim Keller has a great saying. He says, "Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither." That's a warning about being too earthly minded. But what about being too heavenly minded? You've heard that one. The idea that somebody's so thinking about what's to come that they really are no practical good here and now. Well, the Apostle Paul didn't seem to have a problem with that. Do you remember what's the subtitle of this series? Living today in light of tomorrow. On both of these books, it, that's a major theme. What is coming should make a difference now in how we live and what we do and the way we conduct ourselves. And so Paul has no problem, as it were, descending from prophetic heights and coming in a very practical way down to earth and talking about the real stuff of Christian living. And he's trying to encourage these Thessalonian brothers and sisters to keep on persevering, to hold fast and be firm in the faith and be steadfast. But he has something he wants to remind them of today in order to encourage them. He's had to warn them recently about the dangers that are around them and that are involved in the persecution and what could come their way. And he said it's not an easy time to live. But now he wants to give them a word of encouragement. And he wants to give God thanksgiving because he knows something that we need to know and remember. When you consider the subject that Paul was discussing to his Thessalonian readers about the rebellion that was to come soon and about this man of lawlessness that was going to appear on the scene in league with Satan himself. That's scary stuff. And yet Paul seems to now be switching so quickly to being thankful of being so heavenly minded, as it were. He is, he is full of praise and thanksgiving to God. And more than that, he's confident about their situation. How does he do that? Go from, from warning them about this dangerous reality to come soon, and now he's telling them, God's got this. God's got this. Here are the three points in today's uh, outline. We're going to look at as we look at this text the foundation, the exhortation, and the supplication. Foundation, the exhortation that Paul gives, and then the prayer, the supplication that Paul is going to give. Let's look at those. Let's look first of all at the foundation. That's found in verses 13 and 14. Paul is confident. He is confident in his reflection on what's happening, even in the midst of what he's warned them about. Paul is recalling right here for us and to them the foundations of their faith. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his most excellent word. What does that foundation tell you? What kind of truths does it hold? What's it made of so that it's sturdy and strong to weather whatever storm may come? Well, look again at verses 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit 
and belief in the truth. To this he calls you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason Paul is so confident, the reason why he's full of praise and excitement and thanksgiving about their ability to stand in there and hang in tough and not bail to continue to persevere is because of God's eternal loving purpose for them. And Paul is reminding them of that. Paul is reminding them of God's eternal love for them and of his choice that was before the foundation of the world. The, the verse in the NIV, ESV uses first fruits. I don't believe manuscripts are, 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 are mixed, but the best manuscripts, I think, and, and when you look at the context, it is clear, especially when you look at Ephesians 1, 4, about before the foundation of the world, the better translation is in the beginning he chose you. In other words, this was long before you and I ever showed up. God set his electing love upon a people. And then it says, Paul says that he loved them and he set his love upon them. And then he set them apart for himself and called them in his own good time to be his people. And he used the gospel to do that. As they separated from the world and became part of the family of God, the community that we call the church. Now, according to this passage, again, that we see the ultimate purpose for our salvation is not human-oriented, but it's God-oriented. He's reminding us again that this is all about the glory of God in verse 14. He's saying the reason why he chose it is ultimately so that the glory will be his. Too often we get it wrong. We get it thinking that it's all about us. God's plans and purposes are ultimately about himself and advancing his own glory. The glory and the wonder of the gospel is that he includes us in that too and we get to share in it. And that's what verse 14 tells us. That though it's God's glory, we're going to get to be there with Christ and share in it. Too many people want to continue to try to find a way to give themselves credit for their salvation. Because as far as they know, they one time decided, hey, this is a good idea. What I was doing, not good. I'm going to now trust in God and believe in it. And so therefore, that was me. But remember what Jesus said? You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you, your fruit, you may bear fruit and your fruit may remain. God's choice of us was long before our choice of him. Did we choose him at some point in time? Absolutely. Absolutely we did. Through by hearing the gospel. But what caused that to happen? It's the work of the spirit. This is pictured very vividly in the book of Romans in chapter 9. In chapter 9, or excuse me, chapter 8, there's that chain of salvation before the foundation of the world. God set his love and chose a people, and then in time he justified, and then he, he called, then he justified, and he eventually assures that he will glorify. You see, that's the purpose. God's glory, and yet we get to join in it too. Now, if you're wondering right now, by the way, if, if, you, if you ever have seen someone rescued from a drowning. Have any of you ever had that experience? Or did anybody ever save someone 
uh, from drowning. <laughs> you know, can you imagine you get out of, the, out of that situation, you get back to the beach and they recover and then they stand up and say, you know, I did a pretty good job of saving myself out there. <laughs> you had to go out and almost get drowned yourself. If you've ever tried to, to rescue somebody, it's very dangerous. They could take you down with them. But I mean, what, what absurdity. Why would you give glory? Why would you take credit for that which you were a drowning man or woman, boy or girl? The glory belongs to God. And yet, he has caused us to be able to share in it. Now, at this point, maybe you're thinking, well, okay, okay, Joe. Sounds like we have nothing to do with it. If God chose us, then it really doesn't matter what we do, right? Wrong. Remember the last part of verse 13. It said, God chose us to be saved through, not apart from, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and what? Belief in the truth. There's your part. That was part of the plan. That was part of the design. That's what God accomplishes. He opens your eyes spiritually to see and understand your need for that. He even gives you the faith, but you exercise that. Here we're running up again that mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They're both in the Bible. They're both taught clearly. And we must not be afraid of each of them, but hold both together simultaneously. You see that throughout the scripture. Paul many times does that in, within the same sentence. You see, there is God's part and there's our part. There's an end and then there's a means to that end. God ordains the end of all things, but he also ordains and plans and purposes the various means that will get to that end and accomplish it. The same God that ordains certain ends ordains the means to those ends. Like what? Like the God that says, I'm going to save, let's see who we got, Sergio. I'm going to save Sergio Caffarelli. God? Did that before the foundation of the world, whether Sergio knew about it or not. At some point, he came to Christ. He put his faith in Christ. He's now in the family of God. He's been saved by the grace of God. But how did he reach that point? The God that ordained that that Sergio was going to become a Christian and believe in Christ, he also put that person in his life to pray for Sergio. He put that person's life to maybe share the gospel or read the word of God or be in a Bible. Who knows what the circumstances were? He orchestrated all that as well. And that's where our part comes in. It no, God's sovereignty in no way lessens our responsibility. Why You say, well, if God's already in charge and if he's sovereign, then why pray? It's because he has ordained to use our prayers in the accomplishment of his purposes. They're woven into the very fabric and the warp and woof of what God is doing in our lives in accomplishing his eternal plan. See, this truth embodies much mystery, but it also brings something very important, certainty. Remember what John 6.39 said? Jesus had this reality in mind. He said, "And and this is the Father's will which has sent me that which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Jesus said, all that the Father gave me in his purpose, I am not going to lose any of them. That's where the certainty comes in. See, a lot of times, unfortunately, 
The doctrine of divine sovereignty and election is in the Bible. You can't escape it. You cannot. It's everywhere. But we are also responsible, and that's in there too. And, and we, have, we make choices and we believe. All of that's in there. But how do, you, how do you sometimes, unfortunately, people use the wrong medicine in certain circumstances. Sometimes people drag out the doctrine of election in places where it's not really helpful. Other, this is one of those that is. And Paul is saying, look, you're persecuted, you're in danger, you're afraid, but don't fear. You're secure. There's nothing the body they may kill, God's truth abided still. Like Luther said, he knew that there's nothing could separate them from the love of God. And that's sure and certain because of this everlasting love that God has poured out upon us. And so Paul is encouraging them and giving thanks for such a firm foundation that we as believers stand upon. And therefore, we don't have to fear. You know, think about it for just one moment. What if, what if it really was all up to you? And you, it was all about you and all about you getting in and you keeping yourself in. How confident do you feel some days about that? I don't know about you, but there are days I, I kind of wake up and wonder, what is this stuff I claim to believe? Do I really believe there's a God? Do I really believe that the scriptures are really? I don't know about you, but I struggle sometimes with doubt and fear. And you know what? What is my, if it's all about me, how do I know I'm not just going to one day wake up on the other side of the bed and, and decide, I don't think I want to do this anymore? You see, my certainty and my hope is because God is the one who holds me. His love is underneath me are the everlasting arms. His, I am the apple of his eye. It is his purpose and his call that is certain. And that gives me assurance that no, that love will not let me go. Will not let me go. I'm not going to, in the end, be disappointed. I'm not going to walk away because he's the one keeping me. You see how that is what the doctrine is meant to do, to encourage. And it does nothing to negate prayer or missions. Matter of fact, did you hear what Paul said? It's through the belief of the truth. And then he says, what? Through the gospel that you've heard. That's why we have to send missionaries. God brings in his elect through missionary efforts. That's part of the means that he uses. We don't make these things that are friends enemies. They dance and play together in the economy of God if we will receive it as it's given. Now, there's an exhortation in verse 15. This is really cool. Paul exhorts them to stand firm. Look. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, what's going on there? You might suppose once again, that if God has this purpose in election and it's going to stand and the children are therefore already secure, then it really doesn't matter what they do now, whether they're really being steadfast or whether they're really being holding tight or whether they're really being obedient. Sure, it matters. Paul says, the fact that that's true in God's plan and purpose and power in no way negates your responsibility to hold on tight, to stand firm and follow the Lord in what he's given you to do. You see, Paul is telling you to stand firm because of their standing with God. And doing so, he says, ultimately will prove that you are the children of God, that you really are the elect, that you are God's children. Why? Because you don't give up. You don't throw in the towel. 
God does his part to keep you standing, but you stand firm. Paul talks about that all the time. He talks about, about the power coming from God, and he says, yet we strive with all energy. So it's a both and. It's not an either or. That's living the Christian life. Now, what are these traditions that he calls them to hold to? Traditions were simply the ethical and doctrinal teachings of Jesus and the apostles. That's, that's, the, that's the traditions. That's what Paul means by traditions. Think about it. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. You, you hear me every time we do communion. Uh, you hear me say something like this. For I received from the Lord, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. what I also delivered to you. And then he proceeds to repeat Jesus' words. On the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. What is that? That's referring to a tradition. What is the tradition? It was what Jesus said, and he's simply passing it down, quoting it, and passing it on to the next generation. Handed down truth that comes from God's Son and from those who were appointed by him as apostles and gave us Scripture. Later, that truth was written down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and became what we call Holy Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 17, 2 Peter um, 2, 16 through 21. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. That Scripture is the tradition now embodied now particularized in a written document. It's not the traditions of men, what we refer. Remember, Jesus was an opponent of the traditions of men. He warned against the traditions of men, like the Pharisees, who were taking the Bible as they knew it, and they were adding to it. The church has done that, unfortunately, through the years, in many, many ways, in many ways that are dangerous These traditions were not the later traditions of the church, which are always mixed with errors. If you were in Sunday school class, you heard Rick talk about, and as we're doing this class on the Reformation here, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, when Luther stood before that great body and defending his works, and when he knew it was probably going to be the end of his life, and he said, look, I can't. I can't take back what I've said. He said, because, why? He said, because popes and councils do err. They make mistakes. They may be well-intentioned, but they're not Scripture. Unless you can show me from Scripture, I've got to stay where I am. I can do no other. You see, traditions is really just another way of saying the Scripture that we have given by Jesus and by the apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a final element here, and that's the supplication. That's the prayer. Paul finally prays for their encouragement and their spiritual empowerment. Look at verses 16 through 17. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, God the Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. He wants them here. He wants them to stand firm in these biblical teachings, but he knows they can't do it. 
in their own strength. He said, you need the help of the Holy Spirit. And I'm praying for that. I'm praying that God will enable you to do what you're responsible to do, but God's got to give you the strength. See, there again, they play together well. Yes, it's our job to do it. We're supposed to stand firm. But Paul knows they can't be and live out their life practically in a way that glorifies God unless they have the help of the Holy Spirit. He wants them and us to be enabled to honor God with our words and our works in word and deed. You see, God's promises and our prayers, once again, go hand in hand. Think about it. Prayer is not a way of inducing God to do what he said he wouldn't do. It's not twisting his arm. It's God's appointed way. Prayer is God's appointed way for God to do what he has promised to do. And it's your prayers that unleash his promises. Turn them loose. That's our role. That's our job. And Paul is saying, praying for them that God's power would enable them to honor in the way that they both spoke and the things that they did. Now, it's got to be both. Did you notice that? Word and deed. That's, over, that's emphasized again and again in Scripture. We need to realize that God's help in doing the good works and speaking good words. We need his help in that. If our words end up contradicting if our, excuse me, if our life ends up contradicting our words, the things we do contradict what we say, that's going to do a, a real number on our witness. It's going, to take, it's going to take a lot off. It's not enough to depend on good words. It must be backed by good deeds. First John three eighteen says, little children, listen, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Now, is he want one word in uh, love and word? Yes. But he's saying, don't forget to back it up with deed and truth. Make it real. Live it out. Live it in the present. Many Christians today, what? They want to be defenders of the faith. That's kind of exciting, especially in this 500th anniversary of the Reformation, thinking about Luther standing, being a defender of the faith. That's, that's kind of exciting stuff. But... We must be demonstrators of the faith also in the way we live our lives. Not just able to articulate on a blog some theological truth. How are we living it out? How well are we loving? How well are we serving? How well are we giving and going? My friends, Paul is trying to encourage them and us. He's giving thanks for the certain security that we have. He's exhorting them to hold firm. And now he's praying that God would enable them to do it. And in all of this, he's celebrating something. And we need to join Paul in thanksgiving to our God for so great a salvation as this. Amen. Let's pray. Father, once again, ask that your Holy Spirit may enable us, equip us, and help us to not only speak truth and hold fast to it, but also live lives that adorn it. And we can't do that in, in our own flesh, in the power of, our spirit, of your spirit only. Can that be done? Forgive us our sins. Continue to renew us and use us to advance your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name for his sake.